All right, you guys uh, greeted out out there? All greeted out, no? The extra donuts that we've added to the tray in the back have helped you maintain your energy deep into the morning. Me and Jan were talking about um, a donut upgrade, and Jan, as I see from here, the donut tray looks empty. We have done, we have done well. You have consumed an extra box of donuts, so we, we rewarded you, and congratulations. Um, Memorial Day is an interesting day for a lot of people, and I thought Eric did a really good job of just reminding us, you know, we often say free country, right? But... But freedom has cost so much. And I think Ronald Reagan did that video so much justice when he talked about the lives of, of, of these young soldiers that have been given. And even today, as we think about it, we still think about war being fought by these older, you know, people. Um, and even Jack, the gentleman that came up here, you know, someone who's actually served in war. I mean, these, most people serve when they're young. And I just thought that that video was such a paying tribute to realize that it's often on the backs of the young you know, that this freedom has been given. But the reality for the church is every Sunday that we walk through that door, every Sunday, just like communion is a great reminder, is such an amazing reminder of the church of, of the cost of the freedom that we have just to worship, right? And that cost, although it's free for us today, I mean, 2,000 years ago, it was the talk of the town. It was everything that the whole world stopped to recognize, that this, this carpenter, was going to walk to this cross after living this amazingly clean life and, and say there is no greater love than a friend lay down his life. And so to all of you who have service, family, friends, you know, Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines, whatever capacity uh, they continue to serve, they still serve today. They're out there serving right now. We thank you and we appreciate that. And I think it's unfortunate we as Americans are not as appreciative of our military. And I think often we get confused about political things and we and we don't want to pray, and we're like, you know, Ugh. but that's just, you know, fight that urge. Would you fight that urge and continue to pray for our country, continue to pray for our president and those people that fight and serve, because they're, they're giving their all out there every day, and sure enough, every morning someone will pop on the news and say, this person has passed, or this person has passed, and I think it's really important, not just one day a year, to stop and recognize that um, everything we have has been a gift. And whether we're thanking our military today or just recognizing our own freedom and faith, um, you know, be considerate of that every day, right? Because this sequence that we're happened to be in on Memorial Day is James 1, 9 through 18. It's, it's on trials and temptation. And let me just tell you, to get to this spot here today, for me, has been one of the most entertaining TV shows a human being has ever lived. I mean, starting from Wednesday, God has just allowed me to see this message come alive in my own life. And so um, I'm going to share with you what James had to go through. But I also want to let you know, too, that just because you're a pastor and just because you walk with the Lord and just because you believe that God is good does not mean for any of us that there's a free pass in this. Everything comes with a cost. And so even for me to stand before you today, um, I'm not going to weigh you with everything that I've gone through this week. But I can assure you, uh, the smile that I have and the sense of joy that I have even to stand up here this morning is true, because there's many different trials this week that would just say, it's too much, it's overwhelming, take a break and run and hide. But I can tell you that the Lord is good, and having the perspective that James wants to help us have is so crucial to your success, just like my success, and how to persevere through trials and temptation. We're going to stand tall we're going to stand strong, and we're going to stand firm. And that's what James is going to teach us, right? So let me pray, and we'll get started. If you're with your Bible this morning, we're going to be in James 1, 9 through 18. James 1, 9 through 18. All right, let me pray. Father God, I just thank you for the morning, and thank you for the opportunity that even the week has presented in seeing your hand so amazingly and consistent. Father, I know that as we stop to acknowledge our vets and all those that have Given their lives, Father, we're so grateful because it's not just a reminder of the freedom we have in this country, but the freedom we have in faith. And so to stop and spend some time with your brother's book, James, it's such an amazing account of someone who, who really had no faith, who really had no interest 
And yet, you know, after the resurrection, you stop and, and spend some time with him. And, and now today, we get to study this book and see the value of it. And it really, it, it says a lot about us. How we view trials, how we view tribulations in our lives, it says a lot because they're coming and they're here. For, for a lot of us today, they're here. And so I just pray, Father, that your word would speak and be the source of encouragement that it was to your brother and that it is to me and that it is to anyone who finds grace, peace, and mercy at your feet, knowing that you, as First Corinthians said, have provided a way through all of this. Father, we do it all and say it all in your son's amazing and holy name. Amen. So the concept for James that's going to be really important is this concept of standing firm. And standing, for him, standing firm for him is the idea that if you don't stand firm, you're going to be tossed about. And if you don't stand firm and you're tossed about, then you're going to suffer from being disobedient. And for me, when it comes to standing firm, there is a passage in the Bible that I think says standing firm so amazingly clear. It's Ephesians 6. Now, a lot of us use this as the armor of God. But since James is actually writing before Paul, I want to read it for you again, just in light of this, because James is writing before Paul. So when it talks about strong and standing firm, think about this as we read through the passage there. Let me, let me flash back to Ephesians 6, and tell me if you don't sense this standing strong in this verbiage. Finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over the present darkness, against the spiritual forces of the evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand evil in, the, in every, evil every day, and having done all, to stand firm, therefore stand firm. Is there a theme in that or what? There seems to be a very significant theme, and so the reason why I want to cross-reference that is because I believe that James ends up being a founder of the church, and because of that, this writing heavily influences all those who write after. And so since we love to fall back on that passage, I think it's great in light of that to think about who James is, because that for him is crucial. How do you stand firm? How is your spiritual posture going to be when the trials and tribulations of life come? You see, because the reality for James's life is this. Although everyone wants to attribute to James to being this amazing teacher, for the first part of his life, he was not a believer. He was antagonistic to Jesus, right? And so a lot of people don't know that about James. He didn't believe, and he, he was actually against him. But the reality says in, in 1 Corinthians 15, 7, that Jesus appears to him after the resurrection. He appears to the 500, and then he individually appears to his brother. And when he does that after the resurrection, James is so motivated that he writes this letter and he then has the opportunity to write this letter as kind of a how to be a Christian. And if you actually look at the book, the first of 1 through 27 verses actually talk about true religion, right? He knows what true religion is because he's lived it with his brother. He's lived in opposition to it, and now seeing it in the true light of who his brother is, he knows how to write about it. Chapters 2 through 3 talks about true faith, who we are, how we stand, what the tongue does, and how it steers people in and out of trouble. And then he writes in chapters 4 and 5 about true wisdom, the difference between your earthly wisdom and now the heavenly wisdom to aspire for the higher calling in life, the crown of life. And he's going to talk about different crowns. You see, he writes from a place of struggle. He writes from a place of looking back on the first half of his life and seeing how he was against the, the word of God, against his brother, against Christ. And now he takes all that in this second chance that he's given, and he writes for Christ. And to me, that's so amazing because Jesus' uh, relationship with, with his brother was not as amazing as we think it was. His brother was actually very antagonistic. Um, if you have never read before, John 7, 1, 5 actually records one of those accounts where James and his brothers were very antagonistic to Jesus. Let me read this to you in case you never understood the relationship Jesus had with his brother. It says, uh, John 7, 1 through 5. After this, Jesus went around in Galilee. He did not want to go around or about to Judea because the Jewish leaders there were looking for a way to kill him. But when the Jewish festival of tabernacles was near, Jesus' brothers said to him, leave Galilee and go to Judea so that your disciples there may see the works you do. For no one wants to become a public figure, acts in secret. Since you are doing these things, show yourself to the world. Verse 5 then says, for even his own brothers did not believe in him. Now, when bro the brothers of Jesus are listed, it's always James, Joseph, Jude, and Simon. 
James, Joseph, Jude, and Simon. And what that tells us is first listed is always oldest, right? First listed is always oldest. So not only is his older brother antagonistic to him, but he's leading his other brothers against him as well. Because of that, James, who lacks faith the whole time, it's such a monumental moment when we find out later on in 1 Corinthians 15 that after Jesus' resurrection, after he appears to the 500, he then seeks his brother out individually. And it's recorded by Paul that Jesus then approaches his brother individually and offers himself up to him. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine before the book is ever written? Can you imagine the moment that your brother, the one you've been scoffing, the one you've been mocking, the one you've been leading your brothers to be antagonistic to your whole life, comes back to you and says, James, we need to talk. I've risen, and everything that you said about me is unfortunate, but the reality is, the truth is, I am what I am. And I need you to understand something. Although you've lived your entire life completely opposed to me, I need you. Can you imagine the discussion that James and Jesus must have had right there? Can you imagine the sense of frustration, anxiety, confusement? I mean, James must have been going through everything. I mean, even just thinking about this as I wrote the paragraph down, I was thinking, no wonder why James screams urgency. We must go. We must do. Can you imagine squandering your entire life, being next to Jesus every single day and and mocking him and prodding him and saying, go do and go entertain and then having your brothers laugh and giggle. There goes Jesus. He thinks he's the son of God. And here he is, the risen Lord, standing face to face with you saying, James, it's time. We got to run. And James is like, all right, I'm going to write about it. I'm not going to be washed by the sea anymore. I'm not going to be tossed about. I'm going to look back on all these different situations, and I'm going to consider them all joy. And I'm going to look back on every situation with a different understanding, a new perspective that you are going to give me, but urgency will be weaved through all of it because I realize now I have squandered so much of it. And so I don't know how much time I have, but let's go. And isn't it funny that the church at that very time, Christ's resurrection, what happens to the church? It's just being birthed, right? The church in the book of Acts is just being birthed. And who comes in to birth the church? Who comes in to be this great pillar of the church and leads the church in Jerusalem for 30 years? James. 30 years he goes on to lead the church. He's known as a prayer warrior. He's known as a pillar. He's one of the founding fathers. And even in his last days, as the rocks are flying and the traditional salute for everyone who starts the church, who's opposed to Rome, who's opposed to the Pharisees, as the rocks are flying and he stands in front of them, James dies a martyr, stoned for his death, and he stood firm. One day, completely opposed. And one resurrection afternoon, completely for. So as you read James, you have to get away from everyone else's interpretation. And there is a myriad of interpretations out there. James is for this guy. James is against this guy. James isn't worth anything. Everyone seems to have all their understandings of James, but James was Jesus' brother. And what he has to say is so significant for us. Because what he has to say is this, it's not about how you lived, but what you do today with the risen Lord. And as you step forward in that and we start to read some of these passages, understand something. He's wrestling with that every single moment. There's this new understanding of that. So when you look back on a verse like verse number two, last week when Eric said, consider it pure joy when you face trials. He's saying, hey, I have faced those trials. I have been tried by those same fires. So what I'm telling you to do is what I have done. I'm not asking you to do something that I haven't done myself. And because I've done it, and I now have the benefit of seeing its value, I'm going to tell you to do it because I can tell you the value of it. Consider it a joy, knowing that the testing of your faith develops perseverance, and that perseverance must finish its work so you, like James, can be pure and complete, right? That's a whole new perspective. That's how he's developing his stance. That's why he's saying you can stand firm. If I can, you can. And so he continues to write, And he picks it up in verse 9 when he talks about a believer who finds himself in a low position of life should be proud that God God has given him a high position. Well, that doesn't make sense. A believer in a low position should find himself in a high position. What's going on there? Remember, James has been given a whole new uh, paradigm shift, right? 
antagonistic and against one day, resurrection weekend for the next week. Now the Spirit of God is inside of him, residing in him, and providing a whole new understanding of how his Father sees things. And so he writes from that place, and he says, hey, look, when you're lowly in spirit, when you're lowly in economy, when you're lowly right now, you need to understand something. In my Father's eyes, he sees you as higher. There's a benefit to your current status. One, because you don't have much, you appreciate more already. Think about that. Those who are poor, we live in a town where it's kind of extremes, right? I came here with a decent amount of money, very good credit, and tried to buy a home five different times. I'm not going to give you the amount that I tried to put down or my credit score, 803, but I couldn't buy a home. (laughs) So this town turns out to be one of those kind of towns, right? So Jen and me don't feel lowly, but obviously in this town, we're just not that available. So we trusted God with it and finally realized we can't buy a house right? The benefit of not buying a house is we trusted God with whatever we could buy. Now, ultimately, the only reason we have a a townhome or condo or whatever it actually is, is because we bid on every single home, and then everyone else would bid on a home, and we never got any home. If the home said 450, it sold for 520. So we finally told our realtor, who was from Texas, and she didn't understand anything, but we told her this, (laughs) bid 5,000 less. Where's my wife? Where's Jennifer? Yes. Did, did, I said, bid 5000 less. And she said, nope, Jeff, that doesn't work. I know y'all are not understanding me. It's going to sell for about 30000 more. And I said, good, bid 5000 less. And tell her this, I'm a pastor. I want to live in my hometown. I was born in Hogue. This is a homecoming for me, and I've got to work and live in the same town. And if you guys know where Tom lives on Wakeham Street, the other side of the street is Santa Ana, right? Coast of Mesa. It's as close as I could be and live where I'm like, put the bid in and tell her, I, I believe that God wants us to have this house. That house sold for $37,000 over in its bid war, and she took our bid for 5000 less. Right? On top of that, three days into the house living there, as we're unpacking, the gentleman who offered that amount is what I can best come up with. The gentleman pulled up, very astute, driving a very lovely brand new AMG Mercedes who's retired, said, you know what? This is the house that I've been trying to buy. I want an in-town home, no neighbor, whatever. I don't really care what you paid for it. I will give you $100,000 cash right now over whatever you paid, and I'm a realtor and I'll pay for all the moving costs. And I told him, straight-faced, I'll show you the house, but you can't have it because the Lord has provided for me. Right? Those who are lowly have a different perspective because when you don't have much, you appreciate. Now, I came from a very big house in a whole different world in La Quinta. I was a normal person there. (laughs) Now I'm a lowly person here, right? But when you are lowly, you appreciate things much more. And what he's saying is that appreciation is going to be a benefit to you. And this new understanding of how I see my brother and how he works, to be lowly puts you in a position to appreciate things more. And that's a benefit to you because pride and arrogance and boasting are now going to go away because you don't have much to talk about. And what you do have, you're going to be far more appreciative of. So let's roll reverse here and let me tell you how blessed you are. Do you get that? It's a whole new appreciation and a whole new inspiring to this lower level of class of society and saying, you have value in my brother's eyes. And they're like blown away. And then he goes on in verse 10. It's a little bit of warning here. There's some irony in this. This reads a little difficult, so let me help you with the irony. But someone who is rich should take pride in his low position because that will fade away like a wildflower. Now, what he's saying here is there are wildflowers all throughout Jerusalem. There are beautiful flowers that spring up with certain rain showers and whatever. And it's not that they're not beautiful. The problem is they're here today, gone tomorrow, okay? If you're boasting about your riches, if you're boasting about what you think you have, you might be rich and famous and all this today or tomorrow, but when that goes away, all that's left is what? Nothing. And you have nothing to fall back on. Where that poor person who is asking the Lord every day for their food, for their water, for their shelter, is developing an intimacy, a need in their relationship for God that you don't have. So you should be cautious, rich person, about what you're boasting about. You might as well go ahead and boast because it's going to be here today and gone tomorrow. But you should also have a new understanding and respect for the poor because they're teaching you something. And that's a value that we should all have. 
Don't become subject to your boasting. That just leads you into more moral and spiritual issues. Instead, have a new view, a new understanding of the low and the poor and what God says. And that's part of what the letters that they will go on to write, right? All throughout the New Testament, take care of who? The poor, the widows, the lowly, right? He, he, he's writing this. James is inspired. He's, he's writing this and he's telling. And you see that all throughout the New Testament now. This teaching now goes out, and he's telling them it's a reverse hierarchy in my father's economy, and my brother said it, and now I have to live it, so you need to understand it. He's going to continue with this teaching in verse 11. The sun rises, its burning heat dries up the plants, their blossoms fall away, their beauty is destroyed, and in the same way a rich person will fade away even as he or he goes about his business. Now this is a little bit more stern warning. What he's saying here is one day fire will test everything, okay? When the fire tests something, what happens is it burns off what they call dross. Now, if you've never been involved with a refining process or whatever, is everything that's dross is consumed by the fire. And as the, as the refiner works with that, the other elements that are not pure are burned up. And as he continues to work in this refining process, at the last moment, the element becomes completely pure. The refiner has the opportunity, what they call this flashpoint, that the element then goes mirror. It's pure, right? And in that purity, the refiner sees his reflection and he shuts off the heat. Now, I've always been thought that was one of the most amazing examples ever from the real world to the spiritual world. Because think about that. James's perspective is, here's how my father is using trials and temptations in your life. He's burning off the dross. He's burning off everything about you that you don't need. That isn't pure. He's burning it off. And you can't be trying to hold on to it all because it's not pure. It's not going to last anyways. And what he is leaving in you, what will remain in you is the purity of who he is and what will last forever, where where moth and rust, you know, and thieve will not steal. He's, He's helping you store up a pure. It's a different perspective. And once he sees himself in you and you are refined, he'll shut that, that thing, that the temptation, that trial, it goes away. And that scenario is over and you've learned and you've gleaned that truth from him and you can move on. The problem is when we're in that refining process, we fight and we struggle to hold on to all these other elements. And he's saying, let it go. Right? There's no, uh, what's the old saying? There's no U-Haul behind a Hertz. Where's Tom at? Have you towed any uh, U-Hauls behind any Hertz lately? Yeah, you don't, I mean, the box is pretty limited on size and space, although I I see them now trying to double stack. You can rent one where you get one, and you can put your husband here and your wife here, and I guess that's the new, that's about as much space as you get, you know? You can stack family members or whatever it is, but you don't get to take stuff with you. And then all your stuff is left behind, and then people fight over it, and if you haven't written out a living trust or will, then the court gets to dilly-dally with it, and you know what? It's all a giant waste of diversion of time, right? It's just stuff. You came in with nothing, and you're leaving with nothing, and one day the Lord's going to restore it all with all the stuff you need. Why are you so distracted? I get distracted by it too. He says, you know what, verse 12, the reality is blessed is the man who keeps on going when the times are hard and has come through them. Then he will receive a crown, and this crown is life itself, the crown which God has promised to him. It's not a crown like what you're used to working for. Now, there was a couple of different crowns that were available. There was the, the runner's crown, right, the wreath. You know, if you ran the Olympic, you won the Olympic. The, the wreath was a, a, a crown to aspire for. But how long does a crown of, you know, flower, uh, greenery last? Two weeks? There was another crown that you got for a wedding. It was a beautiful crown. It was flowers. It was the most beautiful florals, uh, flowers that were available. And you would get this beautiful bouquet, a crown to wear for your thing. How long does that last? A few days? And he said there was even the crown that the king would wear, gold. Oh, and the people were like, oh, the king in gold. What is gold in, in heaven? Concrete. Street. Yeah. Wow. Nice concrete crown, dude. I mean, he's like, your perspective is all wrong. You're laboring for all these temporal crowns when you don't understand something. There's a crown that's worthwhile. There's five crowns, by the way. If you've never done a study on the crowns, small groups, fascinating study. There's a lot of crowns to aspire to, but this particular crown that I'm telling you aspire to is for those who persevere, the crown of life. Aspire towards this crown. It's worth it. It makes life worth living. It's the perspective you need to run accordingly in the race of life. Now, if you, haven't, if you weren't here last week and you missed out on that, it's because the trials that God is allowing in our life are producing something. 
He's allowing them to produce something in you. God is not punishing you with trials. That's not how it works. And so that's why James is saying your perspective of the trials is crucial, right? If you see that God is allowing the trial to happen so that he can refine you, once you make that switch in your life, everything changes. It's not that the problems go away. Not what he says. But your perspective of them allows them to change how you go through them and how your life begins to take on new meaning and understanding. You see, the crown makes the perseverance worthwhile. You run in such a way as to receive the crown. And the crown is not rewarded in this life. So you can't get caught up in the minutiae and the things of this life because this is not where the crown is. It's in the life to come. And so we have to aspire and keep our head and our heart on the things that matter. And remember, we have a limited time offer to share the faith that's been given to us. And no matter what other things happen in life, there's lots of other things that are interesting to talk about. Theology, it's an interesting thing to talk about. Politics, it's an interesting thing to talk about. Business, it's an interesting thing to talk about. But salvation, guys, salvation is our primary focus, and that's why we need to go make and teach and baptize in the name of Christ. We have a limited time offer to do that. Focus on that. He said, if you can do that and persevere, then you, like the church of Smyrna, will receive the kind of reward that's worthwhile, the kind of reward that lasts forever. It's not the kind of crown that's temporal and goes away. It's the kind of crown that the Lord will give you. Now, obviously, like I said, if you do this study on crowns, you'll see what's going to happen. We're going to have them for a period of time and give them back. That's all a different study, but it's an exciting thing to realize that we, we labor for something. There's an opportunity to labor for something. He says labor for that. Now he's going to transition out of that, and he's going to move through 13 through 18, and he's going to talk about temptation. And the first thing I want to catch in 13 is the first two words, when tempted. When tempted. Not if tempted, but when tempted. Because it says, when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. So the first thing is, this is the key verse of this first kind of uh, few verses. And the idea that if you're tempted is not an option. Okay? As soon as you come to faith, as soon as you make a transition as James is, to see Christ as the risen Lord, temptation is now going to be part of the picture struggles and trials in this life you will have right you now have to change your perspective of to stop blame shifting as we've always done with from the garden on why 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 and just understand okay what are you trying to do with this why does not answer anything and so he says here's a new question for you um not if the issue will arise, but now that the issue has arised, what are you trying to do with this issue in my life? Now, as I look back on the first half of my life and all that poking and priding and denying that I did of you, all those miracles I saw, everything that James has to reflect, how did that refine me? It created a huge sense of urgency for him to do right now, to remember what he had done in the past and to do right by that now. And so that's why a lot of people say James is a book you know, based on works, well, if you had lived your entire life saying no to Jesus, an entire life prodding him and poking him and being antagonistic, when you finally came to true faith, you would be very encouraged to do right as quickly as you could nonstop, right? Am I right? I mean, absolutely. He's motivated. He's highly motivated to say, wait a minute. <laughs> this guy really is. I mean, I saw him die, and then he came back to me, and he said, James, you got it wrong. It's okay. Let's move on. And with the second chance like that, James is not going to mess up. James can go to his death. They can throw the rocks. They can do whatever they want. And you see that in all the disciples and the apostles as they're going to their death. They died horrific martyrs' death, right? Uh, don't hang me in the same way the Lord is. Turn me upside down. Where do you find that kind of confidence and strength to say, I can't even die in the same position as the Lord? Because you've seen the risen Lord. Because you know that he's beat it. And there's no temptation to say, I'm worried about dying. He says, look, guys, here's the situation. There's no temptation. There's no issue that I can't help you through. But you know what? The word uh, tempted is the same word entice in Greek. Entice. And so I thought this was interesting. Being a fisherman, um, I do a lot of enticing of fish. <laughs> I'm really good at enticing fish. And, and the thing is called allure. Uh, A-L-U-R-E, but... A-L-L-U-R-E is allure. And I started talking with Eric about it. He was like, you know what, Jeff? I think you should talk about that. You know what happens with sin and temptations? Shiny things. 
Some of you like shiny things. Shiny things go by you, cars, bracelets, things, and you're like, doesn't God want me to have all these things? You watch somebody with them, you're like, shiny things, and all of a sudden you get distracted by the shiny things, and, and you start moving towards the shiny things. And all of a sudden, wherever you were and whatever you were doing didn't seem to be as important, and now the temptation has taken its first step. The bait has been thrown, and the lure has been placed, and let me tell you, as a fisherman, there's nothing more exciting when I throw that lure out there and I start ripping it in and I see the flash as that fish turns sideways and profiles and I know something's chasing that puppy, right? And it's on. From that point on, as you continue to read, he's like, hey, look, here's the situation when it comes to temptation and luring. You may not think, oh, I don't have a, pro- I don't have a problem with that. That's not my problem. I'm, I know who the Lord is and I trust the Lord every day. Your problem may be judgmental, okay? <laughs> you may have forgotten what it was like before you came to the Lord, and so you've just forgotten. We're all struggling. There's not one person in here. At, at some level, in some capacity, we are all struggling to try to figure out what the Lord is trying to do in us, how he's trying to refine us, and the devil's he's trying to throw something at us, and he's throwing something. Okay, you don't like shiny? How about the fake lures? There's a lot of fake lures that look like real fish. There's actually a lure called the Huddleston, which actually is about $100 for one lure. Now, there's guys who spend that kind of money. I don't. My wife would kill me. <laughs> I buy the kind that are like $4, okay? But a Huddleston is actually made with silicone, and they're individually spray-painted. I mean, if you put that up to like a bluegill or an actual fish, you would be hard-pressed to tell the difference. But for the guy who's really trying to allure a fish, man, sometimes the temptation that, that are out there, they look so similar but you know what? As we continue to read, there's going to be a problem with being allured. As sooner or later, you're going to reach out and put your hands on that. And boy, when you do, let me get to verse 14 and tell you what happens. But each person, when tempted, they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Does that sound like something, being dragged away? Boy, that sounds a lot like fishing. And that happy fish in his watery environment was having a good day until that allure went by and he thought, maybe that's food and I should reach out and touch that thing. And boy, as soon as he did, and sometimes they don't even bite it. Sometimes they'll swim by it and look at it and you get what's called a snag and you'll snag a fish and the snags are in their face. And that means that fish is actually swimming behind that lure and trying to check it out. And at the last minute, he'll realize it's not real. And as he tries to turn away, he, he hits one of the treble hooks and he'll snag himself in the face. And they fight like crazy when you reel them in because you've actually hooked him in a place that's really uncomfortable and not designed to be. And they know they're in trouble, right? Doesn't that sound a lot like us? You know, alcohol is no big deal. Drugs are no... I don't really care what your thing is or why you do your thing. I'm not here to talk about your things. I'm just saying every single thing that exists out there has a little bit of a lure in it. And it wants you to think it's no big deal. You know? Paul even said if eating fish was a problem, I wouldn't eat fish around you. I might eat fish on my own. But if, if eating fish causes my brother to stumble... I mean, every one of us has, you know, situations and scenarios that can make us stumble. Maybe it's my clothes or my hair or the music. It doesn't matter what it is. There's a sensitivity to all these different things and their selfish desires and they're dragging us away. And James is saying, you guys have to recognize that's your own desire. That is your own selfish desire. That's not from the Lord. He doesn't have to put selfish, sinful desires in you. You came with them, right? You don't have to tell a two-year-old how to be naughty. Any grandparents, you just let them be free and that's my toy. No, that's my toy. And when they're bashing the other one on the head with a toy, you realize someone has to step in and teach them how you act with other kids when they have a toy. Now, your, your, my, your kids never did that. Thank you. Well, our kids did that, but they don't do it anymore because they learn, right? You learn. You teach them. But it's within all of us. We all have that same propensity to be naughty. But 1 Corinthians ten thirteen gives us hope. It says there's no temptation come upon you. No temptation that has overtaken you except what is common to mankind, and God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will provide a way so that you can endure it. So God is not only not tempting you, but God is the one providing the way through it. You see, James is writing this from a place of saying, now that I understand the way that I was, 
And now that I can see the way that I am, I can give you a new perspective. You have to just take on this perspective and realize, own your own stuff. Own your own sin. And in that, if you don't have wisdom, if you don't have salvation, if you don't have hope or strength, ask for it because he's more than willing to give it. But don't complain when you don't have it because you're not asking. And that's the correlation. You don't have because you don't ask. And you struggle because you try to take it on yourself. But it's your own selfish desires, my selfish desires. I tried to leave Thursday to go fishing because that's all I ever do in life. And my friend called me and said, hey, I'm, he's a private fisherman and he says i'm going to be in big bear fixing a house up and if you get up here i can take you fishing wow that sounds awesome i left thursday at three o'clock thinking i was going to go relax and go fish and get ready for this weekend nobody told me it was memorial day weekend i paid nine dollars and 75 cents to drive in fast track doing three miles an hour i cursed the day i was born by the time i made it to green river and by the time I actually made it to the 15, I didn't want to fish. I didn't want to drive. I was struggling breathing. I, I was borderline road rage. And if I could have pulled over, which there's no lane to do that, I would have pulled over. I needed a serious adult timeout. I don't drive in traffic anymore here. Do you, I mean, you know what I'm saying? I drive from Bear down Sunflower. Into the, I'm seven minutes to work, and maybe there's a little traffic 12 minutes back. When you're six hours trying to go have fun, the fun is gone. There's no fun left anymore. And I got to Big Bear. I didn't want to fish. My friend is like, yay, let's go. And I'm like, no, stop jumping, <laughs> sit down, go get a drink, do whatever you want, leave me alone. I need some time out. And I try to just sit on the lake and just breathe, right? The temptation is like, okay, Lord, I need this, I need this. And then we get it and we're like, Everyone clear the road. It's like, you know what? They're not going to clear the road. And it's going to be a gut check for you to find out what's in you. And you know what? It's inside of me. It's in my closet right here. I know it's inside you because it's inside of my closet. And when I was done fishing Friday, by the way, I, I caught a huge trout. And the biggest trout I've ever caught while I was up there. And the problem was I knew I had to come back down the hill. And so Friday at 1230, because I'm behind on my message and I need to come down... I knew I was going to be coming down to a lot of traffic, so the joy of catching that great fish was simply overwhelmed by the thought of coming back down the hill. Thank you for turning me off. That's a sign right there, right? Okay, Terry, I get it. And you know what? I just drove down the hill just telling myself, you know what? You don't get to preach on trials and temptation without enduring it. And I wish I could tell you that's all it was. But after I caught that fish, it's like a five or a six pound trout. And I lived up there on the lake and fished a lot. I never caught a fish that big. I got a phone call from my dad saying that my older brother had been in a, um, a major accident and was in ICU for 28 days without anyone knowing because he's ostracized himself from everyone and nobody knew. So on top of driving down the hill thinking about my brother who supposedly had coded three times and almost died, I was just wanting to get home at that point, right? The weekend was just not as fun. And I thought, well, I'll just get home and rest and do whatever. 3.30 in the morning, my wife's sister calls and says, her daughter's at a party, something's gone amok. She's wandering the streets. Can you go find her? I said, you know what? Get the movie script out. We're just going to write this puppy. Yes, I'll go find her. I found her about 4 o'clock in the morning. I brought her home. We stayed up and talked till about 4.30. She had made some poor choices, like a lot of young millennials do. And uh, I finally went back to bed. So I got back to church Sunday, Saturday at 12 o'clock five o'clock because I woke up about two and I thought I'm gonna work on the message come on God speak to me I'm ready to hear from you phone rings hey pastor Jeff sorry to bother you we're down at the beach celebrating our graduation our car broke down can you come pick us up we need some tools to fix the car and I'm back in the tool shed getting tools trying to help them fix their car it doesn't work out I'm John Wayne Airport 10:30 last night dropping them off for a car rental I tell you what guys this message has been such a blast such a blast to work on this week. I, I think Eric is the luckiest guy to be able to preach every Sunday and have that kind of adversity attack you every week. And, and you know what? The whole point of the Ephesians, we wrestle not with those things themed, but of principalities of dark and light. When you start thinking about the bigger picture, what it takes to bring you God's word, to bring you the encouragement, and know that we're just 
jars of clay. I mean, me and Eric hang out a lot. We are just normal guys. He's still raising kids. Thank goodness my kids are raised and walking with the Lord, but we're just normal people. When this kind of stuff happens, it shakes you, man. It really shakes you. And if you don't have the right perspective of what James is telling you, you're going to have a, 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 an improper view of God. And it's going to mess you up. And so James says, hey, look, here's the bottom line as we continue to work through this whole thing. Understand who he is and what he's done because the sin of that is after it drags you away, that evil desire gives birth to death. You know, when you drag a fish up out of water, there's a problem there. That fish was designed to be in that particular environment. And that hook and that allure that drew it away from its situation is now firmly stuck in its mouth. And as the individual gets to hold it up and bask in the glory that is that photo picture, he also has the option of taking that thing home and eating it, right? And outside of the water, that fish will die. And that's the problem for a lot of us. Outside of God's protection, saying that God isn't enough and that you need another relationship or you need to try drugs or you need to try this, whatever your thing is that you say, you know, I just got to go and try this because what I have right now is not enough. As you sink your teeth into that hook and it drags you away from that, just know it's going to lead to death. Your relationship with God will struggle. When you say, God, it's just not enough. I need a little bit more. And he says, man, why do you trust me with eternity but you can't trust me with tomorrow? You know, that's confusing to me, right? I mean, eternity, no days, no hours, no nothing. Tomorrow is just 24 hours. What's the big deal? Just reduce reduce it down to a few minutes, a few seconds. I got you, you know? He continues on as he transitions through this, and he says, here's the situation, verse 16. Don't be deceived or fooled, my dear brothers or sisters. Don't be deceived by what? Don't take the bait of Satan. Don't fall for imitations. I think the verb was pseudo-saviors a couple of weeks ago or months ago. I never heard that before, but it's a brilliant saying, right? It's something other than God that's going to get me through this. If I, if I take this drug, if I drink this alcohol, if I have one more relationship, whatever my thing is, you know, I just need this one more little diversion, and I'm going to find this happiness. I'm going to find this joy. I'm going to find this thing I'm looking for, and boom, you clamp down on, and one of those treble hooks just digs straight into you, and boom, you are hooked, and you fight with all that you got, and you know what? Dragged away you will go, screaming and kicking, You know, what you think you're doing in private, it's not in private. Everything gets out sooner or later. Don't fool yourself. The person you think you're doing it with, don't fool yourself. Sooner or later, it's going to be their joy to expose you for what you are. You know, unfortunately, my second year in ministry, my friend got caught in a relationship, and the thought of him standing in front of the church, which our church was, you know, 10 to 15,000 at the time, the church I was at, and him telling everyone that he was caught in a relationship and he was an exceptionally gifted worship pastor, was so overwhelming that he decided, you know what? I'm out. And he literally took his life. And so I was the last person that talked to him on the phone, and I can tell you, some people, when they're confronted with the sin and the things that chase them away, will be overwhelmed by it. And it's your responsibility. When you see him swimming for it, when you see him heading down the road, you better just cut him off. Grab him by the tail, grab him by the arm, grab him by the leg, and just tell him, if you go down that road, death is waiting for you. Spiritual death is waiting for you. There's no way to have an illicit relationship or live outside of God's protection and think that he's going to walk you through all that and it's going to be good. There will be serious repercussions if you step outside of that. Right? And I was telling him, God will, God will be with you. We can do this. If you can't sing for a while, it's okay. I was doing everything I can. I was the ultimate spiritual cheerleader. But the emptiness inside of that individual was so overwhelming that it made more sense for him to say, you know what? You guys sit here and deal with it. I'm out. And by the way, this generation of millennials that I'm dealing with, the younger 18 to 28, it's an all-time high with them right now. Their frustration level with all the information and all the knowledge and all the wisdom they have is still leaving them empty and frustrated. And you know what? When you're empty and frustrated and you have all the information and all the knowledge in the world and it still doesn't work, you look for another way out. So please continue to pray for me and Jen as we try to minister to young adults because they are frustrated at a whole new level than you are because they have everything. They have all your 1,500 volumes of dictionaries at their phone. They have every bit of information they've ever needed at one second. And when that doesn't fill their tank, they continue to look at a rabied pace for some type of void filling in their life. He says, you know what, guys, the bottom line is, 
Don't be fooled because Proverbs 27, 20 says, death and destruction are never satisfied and neither are human eyes. Your eyes will continue to wander all the days of your life. No matter how much you have, no matter how much you don't have, you can be assured of one thing, it will never be enough. And the grass may be greener on the other side of the fence, but guys, let me just tell you something. You hate mowing the yard you have now, so why are you looking? (laughs) Mow the yard you have now and don't worry about it. Some of you guys just need to go to AstroTurf and stop mowing lawns, period, because (laughs) this idea that there's something better on the other side of the fence is just a distraction, right? As long as he keeps you distracted, you're not being the man of God you need to be. As long as you're wondering what's over the fence, you're not being the husband you need to be. You're not doing anything you need to be as long as you think there's something else over there. And you got to get to that fence, and you got to get to it, and as soon as you look over, bam, set that hook, and the devil got you, and it goes right down the road, and you're like, you know, there's these little flasher things on my screens, and I'm not really looking for it, but, you know, I'm worried about it. It's called pornography, whether it's five minutes or five seconds. If you have to see it every single day, get a new computer, get a computer. I I use integrity.com, and they filter everything. Find a Christian filter. Do something. Get away from it. Don't be near it. Light and darkness cannot coexist. We're coming up in verse 18. I'm getting ahead of myself. I'm too excited. So verse 17, every good and perfect gift comes from above. Why? Coming down from the Father of heavenly lights and does not shift like shifting shadows. This is so important. Why is that? Because James is going to shift gears with these last two verses. He's going to shift gears and say, look, here's how you overcome these situations. You're going to focus on good. In order to stand firm and to get your position, you want to focus on good. And one of the things you want to focus on is light and darkness don't coexist. So many people right now want to think, okay, um, as a Christian, is it okay to have a friend who's in the world? Every one of your friends is in the world. The answer is yes, but you don't want to coexist with them to the point that you invite them in and you live with them and you let them have free reign. If they're kind of living in opposite or in opposition to your faith, you got to pray for them and you got to be a source of encouragement, but you have to be careful about letting them so far in that their hooks are just hanging off them at all times. You will eventually get snared into their world. We cannot coexist with them. You say, well, that doesn't sound very loving. It's the most loving thing you could do because the prayer of a righteous person, what? availeth much. The thing you need to be is more prayer focused for that person and breaking that wall down. And they need to have that come to Jesus moment where Jesus comes to them and says, hey, look, you're wrong. I do exist. And your current atheist or agnostic opinion of me doesn't work. And I need you to have that moment with them. That's when you can come in and be more and do more. But until you realize what your role is, you are usurping the authority of the spirit in that. And you need to stand down and just hold them up in prayer and say, God, you work with them. God, you do it because light and darkness can't coexist. And me hanging out with them and going in the movies with them and doing all this stuff and them talking about Satanism or Wiccan or some kind of world, we cannot coexist. That's not how we're meant to, that's not how we're designed to function. You need to pray for that person and give them space and let the Lord work on them. I, 1 Corinthians 9, I want to become everything to everybody. Trust me, that is my battle cry. If I could, I would. But you know what the hardest thing is? Is when me and Eric talk about stuff and the reality is that we're, we're just not going to be it for everyone. Sometimes you just have to realize as a pastor and as a person, it's not your situation. Sometimes you're just going to be the person who pulls rocks and weeds and tills the soil. Someone else will come along and drop the seed, and someone else may come along and reap the harvest. You have to be able to play your role and know who you are and not try to do something else just because you really want to. Does that make sense? Then stop trying to be the farmer when the seeds aren't even down yet. Get the rocks and the weeds out. You can't just keep throwing seeds. They're just going to get choked out. Don't learn scripture and then don't apply it. That's what's coming up in James, right? Don't understand what he's talking about and then not do it. Get the rocks and the weeds out first. Don't keep throwing seeds out there. It's not going to grow. It's not going to happen. So verse 18 says this, he chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be kind of first fruits created. What does it say? He gave us birth, a first fruit. The new believers are this prime example. James becomes kind of this prime example of what Romans 8, 20, 22 says, the ultimate restoration of all creation that it can come back to its creator. Let me read Romans to you so you can get a reference. From the time creation was subject to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subject it, in hope that the creation itself would be liberated from its bondage of decay and brought into freedom and glory of the children of God. 
We know that the whole of creation has been groaning and its pains of childbirth right up to the present time. And James says, look, guys, the greatest thing that happens is when we, that his creation, the greatest thing that he's ever made, broken as we are, come back to him of our own volition and give our heart, our mind, our soul to him. And when we do that and we make that connection, it is the ultimate joy for our father. Many of you are parents and you've experienced this firsthand and there's no greater pain. I mean, my own family, I can tell you this for my mom, you know, there's no greater pain for someone than to raise a child and then watch that child turn from the faith that meant so much to you. But in the same sense, every child is a child of God. So just as frustrated as we are about a child or children that are struggling with it, imagine how it is for our father, for we're all his children, right? But in the same sense, when a child comes back, there's also no greater joy. There's no greater joy than that unwarranted hug that comes from a child that says, I love you, I need you, and thank you. And in the same sense, when we cry out or we sing or we sing praises or we commit our lives or serve him with what we have, there's no greater joy to our father than that. And James is saying, hey, look, guys, I was in opposition to this my entire life, and I've been given a second chance. So I'm writing from a place of saying, thank you, thank you, thank you, brother. You know, thank you for giving me a chance that I not, now I don't just call you brother. I call you my Lord and my Savior. And I'm going to write from a position that says, you know what? We got work to do. And everything that comes out of my mouth is going to be breaking up, building up or tearing down. And so I got to be really cautious about what I say and what I do because every day it matters. Every day it matters. And I got to count the cost of it. Prized possessions. That, that, that's the word James says. We are his prized possession. I don't know, how, I mean, how do you go from being that antagonistic brother to being the leader of the church, dying a martyr, and, and believing that you are the prized possession of God? I mean, what a wonderful thing for you to have someone today who's still opposed to God and just know one decision today, they could make a decision. You could make a decision today to take in Christ and become his prized possession and begin to have that new understanding of who he is and how he's working things out in your life. And all those problems and all those situations that you're going through can now be seen in a new light to understand that he was using all that to his glory to get you to that point today for you to say, today is the day I make a decision of faith. James had to come to grip with the reality. I wasted most of my time earlier on, but I will not be that way in the second half. I've been given a second chance, and I will no longer sweat the big things. Instead, I will daily work at the small things. I will labor for the faith that is true every day. And that's what he writes about, simple, true faith every day. And so I ask you today, what are you laboring on? What are you struggling with? Have you taken time to realize you are struggling with something? Because if you haven't, then that's probably the first step that you need to make. We all struggle with something. Maybe something about today bothers you, and feel free to come talk to me. Maybe something about today encourages you, and praise God for that. But the reality is, all of us have come here today, and we all expect God to speak to us. I know I do. And I can tell you, just laboring to try to get this message to you this week feels a lot like the account where Moses' bones were being wrestled with. I mean, it, it, was, it was truly monumental behind the scenes just to come to you this week. I have been as high as high and low as low three or four times, sometimes in the same day. But the reality is, as I get a chance to persevere through each one of those, I look at my children, I look at my son, I look at my wife, and I think about how good God has been to me. And when you think about God's faithfulness, all you can do like James is say, you know what? I've been given a second chance and I will persevere. I'm not running just any race. I'm running the race. And I understand that, you know, there's a crown that does not go away. And so I'm going to press hard. I'm going to challenge my body. Paul said, I beat my body. Where do you think these guys in the New Testament get all this stuff? Now I start to see so much of the New Testament writers all flowing out of James. He's saying, I can see James talking to them and motivating them. James is like this, this senior pep talker at the rallies. And he's like, guys, this is the way it's got to be. I am the biggest goofball in here. I live with the guy every day and I didn't get it, but I get it now. So let's go, let's go here. And they're like, go. And then all of a sudden someone's in a boat and he's sailing across the sea and they're going, they're going everywhere and doing everything because they're motivated. The church just got birth. And in those first 30 years from the book of Acts, you see it just explode. Thousands of people are coming to the Lord just in droves as it's starting. I mean, I pray for that kind of revival again in, in our own church, in our own world. 
Did you think you, if you were religious enough, you could avoid things? Were you trying to use your religion to help you skirt situations and say, hey, if I, if I hold this, if I go enough, if I tie enough, can I get it? It doesn't matter who you are, what you, my example of my week is a perfect, I, I couldn't have been any more buried in it than I was this week. And it wasn't because I wasn't praying or I wasn't studying. I was praying and studying the whole time. It's just, it's life. In this life, you will have, we have it. So what is your perspective? Can you change your perspective today? Now that you know how to stand firm, make the consideration. I need to stand firm. I need to trust God. If you're not trusting God in all that you're doing, then today would you make a consideration just to look at what is it you're holding on? What's stopping you from putting on the full armor of God and standing firm? Once you have the full armor of God on, you are able to withstand any and all attacks of the devil. And by the way, the devil is not omnipotent and he's not all-knowing and he's not everywhere. So the devil officially for the record didn't make any of you do anything. He stands in front of the Lord accusing us day and night. He's our accuser, but we do. We don't need anyone else to be naughty, right? We do it. I do it. Jeff Lee does it. I, I need to be responsible for my own thing. That's why I got to choose this day who I will serve, right? It starts with me. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. I got I to pick that up and walk with that every day. And when I'm good, praise God. And when I'm bad, I ask for forgiveness. And that's what you got to do too. And that's what James is saying. Stop blaming everyone else. That started in the garden. No, it's the woman's fault, you know? And we just blame shift all the time. It's not anyone's fault. It's part of life. Deal with it. Accept it that God is refining us and draw closer to him who has, from 1 Corinthians 10, 13, provided you a way through it. Find the way through it. Learn what he wants from it and be refined so you can be the kind of man or woman of God he wants you to be. So when the rocks come or the arrows come, you can stand firm. And if it even means your life, then so be it. May you give your life a martyr for Christ because there is no other higher calling. And by the way, there's a crown for that. It's one of the five crowns. Finally, what is your aspiration? He said, run for the crown of life. You're all running for something. You're all doing something. As you sit here today, even retired, you might still be aspiring to be or do something. What is it that you aspire or want to do with your life? Please make consideration for this. There's only one high calling in a Christian's life. There's only one great commission in the Christian's life to go, to make, and to teach and to do it in the Father and the Son and the Spirit's name. There's nothing else in our life. The high calling is that we go and we share the faith that has been given to us. Go and live that out. That word go is the same word as they use for mountaineering traverse. As you are going, as you are living, live your life out daily for the Lord, regardless of the trials, regardless of the temptations, and know that he is sufficient and he will walk you through and guide you through and you will have Develop the kind of faith and perseverance that you need to grow old and grow in the Lord. And people will say, that guy has something I don't have. And that's interesting to me. And that's what I want to know about. Let that be your testimony that draws someone to you rather than you having to say, well, I just don't have the ability to share. Live a life that's godly and watch him come out of the rocks to ask you, how is it that you're avoiding struggles? How come you're so happy? Where is your contentment coming from? Watch them come to you. They will find you. Trust me. They long for happiness. They long for the joy that comes from the Lord. Share that with them today, and they will keep coming back. Let me pray. Father God, I just thank you for the morning, and I thank you for every opportunity that your word presents. The reality is that none of us, just like your brother, have the perfect path to you, and we all come from some different way and and if it's not for the opportunity of scripture to just look back on our lives and say you know what we're so grateful i'm so thankful that you uh you know use things like camp for me it was it was just a camp to to hear other students talk about their testimony and how different that was from mine i'm so grateful that you you gave me the opportunity so many years ago to hear that and I think I can relate, like I'm sure some of us can. There's a, there's a sense of urgency in my life to try to pay that back and to be someone who's so grateful for salvation. So I just pray that you would, you would be with anyone that's in this room today, whether they're walking with the Lord and, and, they, and they got it figured out and they're having a good run, or whether they're in that Ecclesiastes 3 season where they're just struggling and they're just like getting punched up against the wall and they just need to just say, you know what? If this is the situation that you've put me in, Lord, then give me the strength to persevere. Father, I pray for any and every person in here, or even the message as it goes out, that you would just be with individuals 
that they would realize if they don't have, that they need only ask, that you are there to provide the wisdom to stop being tossed about. And they do not have to be afraid of the shadows anymore, that you are there to be the light, that light and darkness do not coexist. And the light of your truth helps push all those shadows away so that we can see things clearly. And I'm so grateful your brother took the time to to write this letter from a new perspective saying, hey, it's okay to not start off great. It's how you finish. And so he's not sweating the big things. He's just seeing the, the value of just focusing on these small things every day. And, and man, you've really given him some amazing wisdom. Such a short book. I know people that have actually memorized the whole book. It's such a short book and it's just packed with such wisdom. And so, so grateful for it. I pray if there's someone here today who doesn't know that you, like James, are the risen Lord, that today would be the day that they step forward and into salvation. Father, may everything that continues to happen be said and done in Lighthouse Community Church. Father, be an honor and blessing to and through that amazing son of your